music. In this podcast, we'll take a close critical look at song lyrics of the late 20th century's best-known decade, the 80s, with two members of its most forgotten generation, Generation X. We're your hosts, Margaret and Elizabeth. I'm Margaret. I'm spending my career so far writing corporate memos and press releases and singing 80 songs in the car and shower. I'm Elizabeth. I'm spending my career so far reading and writing academic prose and teaching college students English and singing 80 songs in the car and shower. In this podcast, we're going to break down the lyrics to your favorite 80 songs, consider whether they hold up in a 21st century context, and deliver some choice critique, aka sick burns. So, Margaret, the song I brought for today, I confess, is not technically an 80s song. The song is Paradise by the Dashboard Light, which was released in 1977. Ooh, this is such a good one. I'm so excited to talk about it. However, it did become a big hit in the Netherlands in 1988, and so maybe we're squeaking by on a technicality. (laughs) Sure. I mean, it was certainly the 80s when I first heard of the song. For sure. And I'm excited about it, too. And I'll confess, there was a period of my adolescence where all I wanted in the world was to be invited to a wedding where the men would be on one side singing the men's part and the women on the other side singing the women's part. I thought that sounded like maximum fun. And I'm sad to say that never happened to me. Such an oddly specific because I heard about it happening and I thought I heard about it as an as a phenomenon and I was like why are we not all doing this all the time before the Macarena yeah how people got down at weddings exactly got it I'm glad to understand that's where that idea came from I thought you made it up yourself no um but I want to um start by delivering a little bit of interesting and fun rock and roll trivia along the lines of it being Mia Farrow's sister that Dear Prudence is about, you know, cocktail facts about rock and roll songs. Love that. Yes. Yeah. So the singer, the woman singer on Paradise by the Dashboard Light is Ellen Foley, and she has quite a prolific Broadway and pop singing career. She was, in fact, the first public defender on Night Court before Marky Post was hired into the role. As an as an actress on the show, you mean? Totally. No kidding. I didn't know if you meant like she was technically like in a night court. Right. No, no, no. On the show. She was. Oh, wow. Yeah. But the really juicy rock and roll trivia is that Ellen Foley was in a turbulent relationship with Mick Jones of The Clash. Ooh. And it is her about whom Should I Stay or Should I Go is written. <gasps> You're kidding! That is so uh, crazy! How fun is that? I know, oh, it's so fun. <clears throat> yeah. So um, Ellen Foley performed on the recorded, on the recording of Paradise by the Dashboard Light, but in subsequent performances, it was Carla DeVito, another, you know, straight up, legit, talented, prolific career singer, who was credited with it. She performed it with Meatloaf in concert. Carla DeVito did. And she lip-synced on the video. That's Carla DeVito on the video. Got it. Okay. Because I can really picture the video in my head. Yeah. Okay. Uh, um, Other bits of minor trivia about it is that two members of Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band played on the recording. Wow. Uh, Which ones do you know? 
Yeah, Roy Bitten on keyboards and piano and Max Weinberg on drums. No the- kidding. Totally. Um, the song was written by one Jim Steinman who wrote, he did a lot of writing and producing throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Most of it I would call very theatrical. He had a um, collaboration with Andrew Lloyd Webber. I'm not sure if that ever turned out. And also he produced one of my favorite songs. Gosh, I don't know if it's of the 80s, but uh, Sisters of Mercy, This Corrosion. Mm. Steinman was taken to be the um, kind of brains behind that. I think that marks him as a fairly theatrical, even perhaps florid type (laughs) of music producer. Anyway, so that's some of the trivia and background. And so we can just dive into the lyrics here, which is about trying to get laid in a car (laughs) and using baseball themed metaphors around sex. It's just like, these are such strange bedfellows. Uh, (laughs) Having sex in the backseat of a car plus baseball. Why are these things together? Yeah. Well, so uh, Todd Rundgren helped produce the record and he saw it as like a spoof on 50s culture. Like Mm. he thought it was just kind of a goofball thing. But, you know, that was maybe the beginning, you know, in the late 70s was maybe the beginning of the 1980s obsession with the 1950s. And so maybe that's why it. Right, right. I guess also if you think about uh, old timey bro culture, that's what they, that's what it was about, right? These were the things that they were pursuing. I guess. Yeah, baseball and sex in cars. Can we talk about having sex in a car for a moment? Yeah. (laughs) What do you want to say about it? Just Uh, how uncomfortable it sounds. It sounds terrible. Um, I haven't partaken myself, um, and I don't know why you would, although I guess it's this idea of if you need somewhere to be alone – and you both live at home, where else have you got? If you're too young and you can't rent a hotel room and the park is like itchy or whatever. Itchy. Let's <laughs> <laughs> lay down on some pine needles or right. whatever. I guess that's what I guess that's what you got when you're that age. The author of the song. Do songs have authors? Writer of the song? Yeah. yeah. Um, Jim Steinman had stated that he wanted to write the ultimate car-slash-sex song in which everything goes horribly wrong in the end. And there's a lot of assumptions packed in there, I think, Um, including, like, car-slash-sex song, (laughs) like, as though those are the same things. Um, Also, ultimate car-sex song? How many are there? I know, Are there a lot? I, I mean, I guess... There's like a reference in a Billy Joel song to, uh, right? Um, Keeping the faith. He talks about um, something about in the backseat of his old man Chevrolet, right? Okay. We okay. were keeping the faith in the, yeah. Oh, Do you know that? Okay. Yeah. There's a lyric about I believe that. you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. I won't sing it, but um, it just sounds terribly uncomfortable. Yeah, I keep thinking, all I can picture is like a Happy Days scene. I'm sure there were many, which was also, of course, like a 70s or 80s fetishizing the 50s. But I just picture like Richie stretching out his arm along the back of a 
seat, car seat, bench, you know, and, but I mean, (laughs) Happy Days kept it very PG, but yeah, I just I guess some of those cars had real, real big and wide back seats or deep back seats, I should say, that could function almost like a mattress or a bed. And so I guess part of that is the idea. Like I'm picturing bucket seats and shifters and that is not the scene. Right. I I guess. I think I think that, that, okay, so we're Gen X, so we don't know from cars from the 50s. Uh, I mean, I guess I don't think we do. I think my parents had a car from the late 60s when I was born. But um, my uncle tells a story about a car that my dad used to have when he was dating my mom, in which the seats reclined all the way back. So they were like flat. Like the driver's seat and passenger seat. Yeah, driver and passenger. And if it was a bench, you know then Mm. you're right. It's like a convertible bed. It's like a pull-out couch surrounded by a hunk of metal. And um, I suppose that that gives a different, like, possibility to what's in our brains of it just, how would you do that would be possible, impossible. So um, I'm picturing that part in Greece where Rizzo is in the back of that car with um, uh, 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 yeah, yes. She's in the back with Kaniki, and the bad guy pulls with Chacha Di Gregorio at Lookout Point or whatever, and they're in the back seat making out and whatever. Yeah. So there you go. That's how it was done. I guess so. So besides the physical part of the actual doing of the sex, because that's how you say it, right? You do the sex. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's also like the danger element, which is somebody. Once again, this song, like other songs that we've talked about, reminds me of the possibilities or imminent threat of kidnapping and <laughs> who's, who's got the keys and who, you know, and who's in con- like in the mobileness and control over the mobility is mm. frankly of concern to me. Um, <laughs> but in any case, um, okay. So there's the, co- I guess that's a teenager thing to have the sex in the cars. Cause then you're away from your parents and stuff like that. All yeah, right. Cause you, where else are you going to do it? Yeah. Well, so the song has three parts. Part one is Paradise, where they're, um, I can't remember the exact, uh, I can look at it. They're having fun, parking by the lake, and there's not another car in sight. Mm -hmm. And their bodies are oh so close and tight and glowing like the metal on the edge of a knife. Mm -hmm. Which also, knives, obviously, unless they're super heated, do not glow. So... (laughs) Just to add another, like, physical... It's, you know, it's just evocative imagery. Yeah. And, you know what? I'm actually also so glad to understand the context that it's supposed to be, like, pull from 50s. Yeah. Kind of, um, like, some of those cues, because this part of the song has that great, like, uh, background singer co- part going, show, shop, shop, show, right? Mm. And totally, uh, mm-hmm. that makes sense to me. Uh, is what they're trying to do with the song. Jim, what was his name again? Whoever the author was. Steinman, yeah. Jim Steinman, yep. So anyway, they're establishing that they're getting each other worked up in the first part there, which is Paradise. Incidentally, I read that Meatloaf originally intended the song to be 27 minutes long. (laughs) Which, yeah. I don't, there's no teenage sex that lasts 20 minutes. I know, minutes. I was going to say, sex doesn't even last that long. Yeah. 
Anyway, after that first part, then comes in the thing, the baseball announcer, which was the Yankees announcer, Phil Rizzuto. Oh, yeah. Who was famous at the time. And not not to me. I mean, I don't I understand that baseball announcers get famous, but in the I've never been one to listen to a lot of baseball on the radio. Um, Oh, it's great. Yeah. How can you say that you're from Cleveland? Don't you know Tom Hamilton? Uh, or uh, uh, who's the famous Cleveland baseball player? Bob Fell? Uh, no, no, no. Older? No, I'm forget it. Cut. I can't remember the name of the guy yeah. that was very famous. Older gentleman who used to play for the um, Indians. And he there passed. was a Bob Feller, but I don't know if he was an announcer. No, I'm thinking of somebody else. Well, I was feeling self-conscious that my authenticity was being called into question, but you really stumbled <laughs> there. So I'm glad you joined me. In the inauthentic. You're welcome. I'm here with you, <laughs> knowing mostly nothing. Yeah, <laughs> I know well, mostly. <laughs> in the song, the baseball part was the part that would get cut out for radio play, but when it did get included in radio play, I just want to note that what I read that Phil Rizzuto was replaced with a Red Sox announcer when they would play it in Boston. Oh my God. <laughs> 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 they're nuts out there for their rivalry not totally totally um <laughs> anyway so we could talk about sex and cars and also here insert comments about sex being equated to baseball and like mm-hmm. oh yeah first base second base right um because what is first base like french kissing can we what is what are the yeah bases? i think first is just kissing or over the shirt feeling no no uh, my understanding of the rules is first base kissing second base um hands touching mammary glands third base hands touching genitals fourth Uh, base intercourse fourth base aka home base yes it should be noted Oral sex has no base. I was going to ask about that. Uh-huh. Um, and I feel like if we had gotten clearer with Bill Clinton in this base <laughs> phraseology, maybe <laughs> we would have avoided impeachment. <laughs> uh, wait, were the bases invoked in the Clinton? No. Oh. It was just this. It's what depends on what your definition of it is, is oh. whatever, right? Like, I did not have sex with that. Girl, he was, that's technicality, right? He's right. like, well, oral sex isn't sex. I, if I were an attorney in that situation, I'd be like, Mr. President, what base did you get to? And he would have been like, well, we aren't really doing bases. Uh, <laughs> so the legal code should incorporate the baseball metaphors. But then I could think of a lot of bad stuff that would happen if we t- <laughs> if we took your proposal. Foul ball. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I, I think it's probably a, um, a bad idea, but uh, it, it is very clear. just have to point out, it's completely <laughs> ignored in this scenario. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I'm not going to hazard again about what baseball analogy that Maybe be. oral and anal are in a different sport, maybe <laughs> soccer or basketball or something. <laughs> like, Anal is a foul shot. I don't know. I don't a know. Foul shot. Yeah. You only get two tries. 
And you draw. How do you draw a fowl? <laughs> oh, God. Uh, Terrible. This is really... Yeah. <laughs> Quick version. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so, right, baseball analogies, so many of them really good use in this song. Is there so what, is, what is the announcer saying? He's like, he's like announcing what's happening between the couple, right? Yes. And he's also announcing a baseball strategy. So listen, I know how to play baseball, but I didn't follow the technicalities explained. But he's, he's uh, describing or calling a strategy that apparently would not be used under such circumstances in baseball, something called the suicide squeeze when you've got two outs. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I didn't, like I said, I didn't follow the elaborate explanation. Frankly, I didn't care to follow it. Um, <laughs> but yes, so he's, ma- so the guy, the guy in the song is like trying for like one last shot to make it home. And so, right. and the baseball announcer's emotions are getting higher and higher and higher. And then that leads into part two, which is let me sleep on it, mm-hmm. which is, is that's the guy, that's the guy saying he needs to sleep on the question of, will we get married? Well, she's just saying, will you love me forever? So right. she's not even asking, explicitly asking for marriage. She's just saying like, just promise that you're going to love me and never leave me. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, we're commi- we're in a committed relationship and you love me and that's all I need to hear from you, dude, before I give this gift to you. And he's like, uh, uh, let me sleep on it. Yeah. Which is kind of weird, I guess, because I mean, I wouldn't have thought his boner would last through the night <laughs> of thinking about it. You know what I mean? Right. So another he, he is yeah. a young man though, so he so he would get another boner later or that yeah. one would last that long. Yeah, I think he, they can he can summon them at will. Yeah, probably so. Um well, he just feels so much pressure with that boner and that he really just can't he's just worried that he's like in the moment, can't dec- can't be trusted to make decisions because of that pressure and so forth. And, um, but then he finally gives in. Yeah. Cause she's like pestering, right? Will you love me forever? Will yeah. you love me forever? My problem there is I think that assuming that women don't just want to get laid in the moment themselves, you know, like that they're mm-hmm. requiring these promises once again, female sexuality. Yeah. And what I, what I there is this question of like why does she think that that's going to change something? It's like right. I guess it is a contract of sorts that she's saying, look, I just need some assurance from you, and I'm good with this because you can. There's like this part of the song. There's like definitely crescendo, right? Like, mm-hmm. and the baseball announcer is talking, and they're both. You can sort of hear them getting more riled up, and she's like just looking for some mm-hmm. reassurance that he's you know, not going to just, not, you know, ghost her the next day. Right. And the lyric is from him singing, I started swearing to my God and on my mother's grave that I would love you to the end of time. <laughs> and <laughs> I didn't realize that his mother was dead in this scenario <laughs> either, which maybe adds another level of psychological. Oh, my pressure. God. 
it's yeah he's without well maybe that's why he's gotten himself in this situation Mm, he's just out there looking for some affection and he's looking for reassurance of his own inadequate parenting yeah his single dad is just like working 60 hours down at the factory and he doesn't have any like feminine role models or or you know or touch he hasn't had any kind of you have to have touch you can't you know maybe his dad is really distant and as you said is 60 hours a week at the at the toilet factory toilet factory (laughs) that's absolutely where meatloaf's dad would work (laughs) (laughs) my god he named his kid meatloaf exactly (laughs) exactly and yeah he's just you know and it was the 50s there was problems like masculinity oh that did not allow for I am for a young man. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, he, I mean, who can fault either one of them? Yeah. Poor meat, you know. Poor meat. (laughs) Is he friends with, sorry, just to take us back to like, why is he singing this song? If Jim Steinman wrote it, did he take it to Meatloaf? Yeah. So they were, had already been collaborators. um, And Jim Steinman, I believe wrote all of the songs on the album Bat Out of Hell that this song is from. I think that, yeah, I think that Jim Steinman wrote and wrote the album for Meatloaf, basically, or as part of a collaboration with Meatloaf. Mm, Interesting. Um, Bat Out of Hell was Meatloaf's debut studio album. And it was like basically Jim Steinman, Meatloaf, and Todd Rundgren working together like a yeah. I can't believe Todd Rundgren was involved in this. Like that guy has had some, what a career. He seems to like be involved in lots of stuff. Yeah, totally. Also, well, my yeah. friend Gary met him in an airport once. Oh, that's cool. What did Gary say about him? Hey, you're Todd Rundgren. <laughs> that's what he said to him. And then they had dinner together at the food court and talked and. Oh my God. Had like a nice little time. Yeah, I wouldn't recognize him if I saw him. I mean, I feel like his whole, it's like what the a producer or a songwriter is invisible, you know? I mean, I know his, his songs that he sang that are famous. Yeah. Well, wasn't Todd Rundgren's face on the front of his album? Like, he's got a pretty recognizable face. And, oh, I don't remember um, that. You know, if you're like a kid in the 70s, like a teenage yeah. teenager, listen, you're just staring at that album cover. So, yeah, seared into your brain. Anyway, so it's kind of fun to picture him and Meatloaf in a room together p- practicing this song. Yeah, totally. I'm learning a little bit more while we're talking. The, al- the album Bat Out, of a- Bat Out of Hell was developed from a musical called Neverland, which was a futuristic rock version of Peter Pan. <laughs> oh, my God. Like the 70s were bananas. That's very 70s. We're really, we're really stretching the concept of our podcast here. Yeah, but, but like you said, it's 80s adjacent. Yeah. And it was a big, it was like a real cultural touchstone for teenagers in the 80s, I feel like this song was. Yeah. Um, and it was one of those that had like slow burn, right? Like it got more yeah. popular as people put it on mixtapes. Right. At least that was my experience with it. I heard it from a friend of mine put it on a mixtape and she was like, you've got to hear this song. And like at the end, she's like, he, she's like, will you love me forever? And then he's like, let me sleep on it. And I remember thinking that's in a song. 
Yeah, <laughs> I <was> right. Just, <laughs> like, very confused about it. Uh, but it Bad Out of Hell is a hell of an album, right? Like there's, it goes a lot of places. And it also reminds me of that story about um, Total Eclipse of the Heart is from a musical oh, too about vampires. wrote that. You're kidding. Same writer. Yes. Oh my God. Eclipse of the Heart. Yes, totally. Boy, he's got a genre, doesn't he? For reals. And it's very, it's so theatrical. I mean, I feel like the 70s was really his decade, you know? Oh, man, he was winning it. Yeah. And and that's from a musical, you say? Yeah. A musical about vampires. Oh, my God. Yes. I read that about Jim Steinman. It's called, like, Night Night of the Vampire or something. Yes. Mm-hmm. Turn around bright eyes. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. that's all Jim Steinman and his florid imagination. He's super florid. Yeah. So... Um, anyway. So then what happens in the end of the song? Oh, right. So they do. They do it. And then the last part is praying for the end of time because he promised he would love her till the end of time. And now he can't wait to get the F out of that relationship because he cannot actually stand her. Oh. Yeah. And so he, and then, so I guess the idea the sort of concept being that praying for the end of time fast forwards a lot to them being like married and with kids because there's some version of the song where uh, in that it so it sort of fades away with it never felt so good and never felt so right like they're re and it yes. fades. and then she says something like I'll take the kids like <gasps> I think she did it in the live version maybe a few times and so the idea is that it's like much further down the road and oh and he and he can't and he needs to get out of the relationship that's so sad because she's mm-hmm. uh there is some like regret i'm trying to remember the words at the end the lyrics um uh he's like hearkening back right never put, felt so good and never felt so right and we were glowing like the metal on the edge of the knife but she mm-hmm. she is saying Oh, I just had it in my head a minute ago. Um, I couldn't take it anymore. I thought it was crazy when the feeling came upon me like a tidal wave. Started to spin to the limit. Now I have to run through it from the beginning so I can remember the part. Cause if, so now I'm praying for the end of time to hurry up and arrive. Because if I got to spend another minute with you, I don't think that I could really survive. I'll never break my promise or forget my vows. But God only knows what I could do right now. I'm praying mm-hmm. for the end of time. Yep. Um, so I can end my life with you? Is that the last? I think that's right. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. That's the yeah. last line? Yeah. In my time with, so I can end my time with you. Well, I the lyrics that I found say, end my life with you. Which sounds like a murder-suicide pact, but I think he just means, like, ending what you say, my time with you, you know? And then it goes into the, when they repeat and repeat and fade into the... Oh, man. One wonders what she spent her life doing that, you know, like, did she, you know, then maybe they got pregnant that night, and then, so she had a kid, and then eventually she went to night school and got her typist degree. (laughs) And then became maybe, or maybe a paralegal degree or something like that. Maybe they had another kid. 
yeah bare illegal um yeah i mean i hope so i hope she figured out how to like take care of the kids while he was going to baseball games or whatever he was doing yeah given his penchant for america's um pastime uh whatever happened to meatloaf well he so the thing that made me think of the song in the first place is that he's still out and about and i had remembered hearing him in the news i couldn't remember how but i think it's because he called greta thunberg the climate activist a name Mm-hmm. I think I think Meatloaf is a straight up Trumpy, mm-hmm. and I mean, so he's had some hits over the years, you know, like "I Would Do Anything for Love, But I Won't Do That," for mm-hmm. example. Yeah, that's a good one. And um, oh, he was—I forgot—he was in Fight Club. Do you remember? He played uh, oh, the yeah. like Invisible Friend or. Uh, oh, I forgot somebody. about that. Yes. Mm-hmm. But that was 20 years ago. That was in 1999. But anyway, I think he's still out and about. He probably performs at like state fairs or something. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Like I think he's yeah. still making money. And then he says these like dumbass political things every once in a while. Uh, here's a fun fact. I have a friend who's from Connecticut and he played this. This goes to uh, Meatloaf's love of baseball. This friend of mine played baseball in his little town in Connecticut and Meatloaf lived in a neighboring town and coached his kids um, baseball hmm. team. So he would be like at the base at the baseball games that my friend was at, huh. just like kind of a weird thought to think like that is somebody's dad and he right coaches baseball. Yeah. And and maybe works at the toilet factory. Too. <laughs> or just once in a while for some extra cash. I don't know. Now I feel like I need to know what his dad really did. <laughs> yeah. Cause why does he call himself Meatloaf? Yeah, I um his real name is Michael Lee Ade. Mm-hmm. I don't know where the nickname came from. Oh, um, here's a here's a little factoid. According to him, his nickname was originally just Meat. It came about because he was born bright red. Hmm. Hmm. So, I don't know. yeah, I mean, you would think like, I don't know, the first couple hours after birth. His dad jokingly said that his son looked like, quote, nine and a half pounds of ground chuck. That's funny. <laughs> That's what all babies look like, though. <laughs> he was nine and a half pounds when he was born somehow does not surprise me right is he a big he's, guy he's a big dude is yeah he? Okay. yeah uh-huh um i mean he, he was in that video remember he's got that purple like flowy jacket on and the he's got a puffy shirt yeah um but you never know how pe- big people are in real life compared to how they look on the screen but i uh, think i think you're right he is a big dude his dad was a cop oh Meatloaf is also a very, like, um, I wonder when that as a food was invented, you know, because it's, it's a very, very 50s I, kind of, right? Yeah, although I remember eating it throughout the 80s. Listen, I have a Martha Stewart recipe for meatloaf that is delicious. Oh, I bet. Got rosemary and yeah. three kinds of meat, and it's delicious. Yeah, I bet. Well, I'm not, sure it evolved. Not like what my grandma used to make with ketchup on top. Yes, that's the kind I remember. Well, that was fun. 
Yeah, well, that's um, Paradise by the Dashboard Light. Yay, I loved it. Mm-hmm. I'm, I feel. I hope everybody goes and listens to it. Now we're all gonna. There's gonna be a spike in uh, Apple Music because everybody's gonna be streaming some meatloaf. Everybody is, and we'll all be making it for dinner. Totally, including. Ooh, I bet Impossible Burger would make a really good meatloaf. Actually, ooh, I bet it would. You're right. And you could combine Impossible and Beyond for the multi meat. Yes, pl- pleasure that was meatloaf. Just throw some. Um, rosemary on the top and you're good to go totally that actually let's, sounds good let's do it maybe we need to create a recipe to go with this episode for and actually meatloaf himself the man is a vegetarian you're really that's what i read meatloaf the man meatloaf the man mm-hmm. i love it well that's it for this episode of sick burns if you want to join the conversation Find us on Instagram, we're at sickburns, or email us at sickburns at gmail.com. And stay tuned for more Sick Burns on your favorite 80s songs with us, your hosts, Margaret and Elizabeth. Thanks for joining.